Hi, and welcome back to the European VC, the go-to podcast for everything European VC. If you love the show, share it with your friends and join our newsletter at eu.vc. Today, we're happy to welcome Sasha, co-founder and managing partner of Creative Ventures, a firm that invests and collaborates with content creators. This year, they closed their first 20 million fund to invest globally in early stage companies innovating in consumer internet. Together with his partner, Casper, co-founder of Influencer.com, a content creator with an audience of over 10 million across social channels, they help founders navigate the social media and influencer marketing landscape. If you enjoy our content, do support us by hitting the follow button, giving us a review and following the European VC on LinkedIn. Sasha, welcome to the European VC podcast. It's super cool to have you here today. You come recommended by a good friend of ours, Bertie from Blue Wire introduced us. Super nice to have you. How are you today? I'm great. It's super great to be here. A long time listener. So yeah, it's good to be here. I always uh, find it a bit humbling when we have guests that listen to the pods. That's super cool. May I ask you, Sasha, what was the first episode that, that kind of caught your eye from the European VC? You know, what? I actually don't know. It's a bit like asking, you know, what's what's the first football game you've ever watched or the first goal you've ever scored. I actually, I've completely forgotten. But yeah, I've listened to a lot of great episodes. Well, I'm happy to be compared to watching football by a Brit. You know, <laughs> so that's kind of a religion to many. So that's cool. Yeah, that's the other <laughs> exactly, Sasha. You know the drill. But before we we start, we we like to hear a bit about your journey into venture, the origin story of of, of your firm. Give us a quick rundown. Who's Sasha and what? brought you to where you are today. Yeah, so I mean, overall, the story is basically going from running a syndicate or investment club into now launching this venture fund, which we closed this year. So um, the story of it is, is basically, um, I was working in private equity at a firm called Bridgepoint, doing large cap buyouts and growth equity and consumer and technology. And I started investing um, in 2019 and created a syndicate with my cousin. My cousin is a guy called Casper Lee. So he is, he was originally a YouTuber, he started making videos in his bedroom in South Africa in, when he was 16, in 2010, uh, and grew his audience very gradually, but then very quickly to around 7 million subscribers on YouTube and 5 million on Twitter and various more on different platforms. And he, in 2017, co-founded a business called Influencer.com, which is one of the largest platforms that matches brands and content creators together. And they're, you know, quite, quite, they've got like over 100 employees and they're quite a profitable business. And I think one, one of the largest people doing that in, in EMEA. So he had this whole founder thing going on, but also this content creator thing going on. This was 2019. And there weren't that many content creators doing investments at the time. But what, what he and I decided to do together is, is start investing together because the context was he was getting quite a lot of deal flow in his inbox from founders wanting him to invest in them. As you can imagine with cold inbound deal flow, some was really good, some was less good, but he would send that to me and you know, I would help him to analyze it uh, as, you know, as the that is investor. That is... That is David. So my situation with uh, GP. So everyone wants my money, and then I say to David, "Who should we invest in?" That's exactly how. It... <laughs> I'm not sure which one you want. To be. You're far. You're far David from. Jumping, jumping. You're far from a million followers, Andreas. So you still have to do some work to reach what? that status. <laughs> but so, 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 and what we kind of realize is that Casper had a lot to offer founders in terms of like helping them out and helping them grow their company, giving them advice around how to get bigger and meet people to introduce them to. And I had very little to offer founders, realistically, apart from the fact that you know, I work in private equity because I know a lot of investors, all this kind of stuff. But I had a lot more access to deal flow, but just not the ability to invest in those great deals. Because yeah. I knew people from all the best venture funds in my time in the US and working kind of around the industry. So we decided to get together 
I would, you know, provide much of the deal flow. You would provide much of the value add. But, but apart from just that, we also decided to share all of our deal flow. We took it a step further, not just two of investing. We decided to share all of our deal flow with effectively an investment club of content creators, celebrities, athletes, musicians, people who can kind of help even more than Casper, or at least in a different way to Casper. And we wouldn't charge them any fees. We wouldn't charge them any sweat equity. We wouldn't try to broker anything. We didn't want to take any economics from it whatsoever, apart from the fact that we would just co-invest in the deals. So we started doing that in 2019. Uh, we invested in you know a few companies over the next next two years. Some of them ended up, ended up you know being, being being good investments. We got lucky with them. We invested alongside some you know really great venture funds, which you know used to be cool to do back in the day. Uh, we invested with like Index and Axel and uh, General Capitalist and various other people like that. And um, and then we used that track record to raise our first venture fund. So I left Bridgepoint in about two thirds of the way through 2021 uh, with an anchor commitment in place. And then we closed our first fund at $20 million in commitments in March of this year. Before we dive more into the firm, I need to just double click. And I've spoken to a couple of guys and girls doing that model of, of working with, with celebrities or, or footballers or, or you know athletes in general. And I've kind of been probing around the value add there and how founders perceive it and how you activate it and that kind of thing. Could you just, you know, both indulge? I think everyone thinks it's exciting. So that's one reason to 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 dive into this topic, but also try and understand what is it that founders see in this and where should people be wary? You know, is is the value add real or is it more yeah. like oh, okay, it's just cool? <laughs> so we just we just had Monique from Pact and their fund. They had they had um they have uh, uh, Anne Hathaway as 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 yeah. one of their LPs. You know, and I, I can't help but think that in one way it's it's absolutely great, and on the other hand, you know, that was the fucking headline of the article, right? Yeah. <laughs> and is that what you want? Uh, so I'm curious to hear how you think about this and how you, how you know everyone you're working with think about this part of celebrities in your fund yeah. and in your investment. Yeah, so it's a so it's a it's a great question. I love that this is now a topic because back in the day it was like nobody was really talking about it as much, but now it's a definitely hot subject. So, so I would say. The first thing just to say before even answering the question, just to provide the context, is there's two very different ways to do this that I think people sometimes, um, they, they, sometimes not, uh, they sometimes conflate them in their minds. One of the ways to do that is you get Will Smith or some super famous person and you, you tell them to invest 100K, but then they also get 100K worth of advisory shares for adding value to the company. And basically you get a blended lower valuation effectively for this investor with the idea that at some point they're going to post about it on social media or tell their friends about it or do something to help the company. That's one way of doing it. The other way of doing it, which is what we do, which is or what we have done, what we still do, which is very different, is we don't ask for any discounts or any sweat equity or any payment for value add. It's, it's just we're investing along with, we're investing in VC-led rounds on the exact same terms as a VC. And the reason that's important is because it means that the value add does not need to be the value add for the value add to be worth taking for the VC, it doesn't need to be transformative to your entire company. All it needs to be is just one percent better than another nameless VC who provides a relatively similar value add to all the other VCs you have on your cap table already. So I think that's the kind of most important context setting. When when it comes to actually what that value add can look like, it's interesting because it can come in a whole load of different ways. I mean, it can be everything, anything from um, posting on social media for free. We've had come, we've had um, we've had uh, our creators who've invested with us do campaigns that have got you know tens or even hundreds of thousands of likes on social media um, alongside our portfolio companies for free. We've we've had uh, we've had for example we had recently we did a company we invested in a company called Lottie, which is a care home platform 
uh, and that was like a, I think we did this uh, earlier around and you know, as a general capitalist um, portfolio company, we, they, did a, they did a campaign for their for carers, for care home workers, and they wanted to publicize it. We'd invested in that deal with a kind of a bit of an uncharacteristic co-investor for us, but he's a guy called Anton de Beek. He, uh, he is the judge on Strictly Come Dancing here in the UK. And so he's, an old man, he's, a, he's an old guy, the old ladies love him. And, <laughs> and effectively, he, he went on Good Morning Britain, which is the biggest, show, biggest morning show in the UK, and did a whole segment yeah. talking, about, talking about this campaign they were doing. And obviously that was totally yeah. free, that their web traffic was higher than it's ever been, and that was actually last week. So yeah. you know, we, we see examples all the time of, of the direct value add, but I think what's also really interesting for us is some of the indirect stuff. These, 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 um, these creators often, and these celebrities, end up being super well-connected they can open a lot of doors in terms of introductions, in terms of people wanting to do what they say. Even somebody cold, they can reach out to somebody cold and they'll reply. If you've got three million Instagram followers and you reach out to somebody cold, chances are they're going to reply. So that's the kind of indirect stuff. And then taking it to even one step further than that, there's the whole advisory layer. So it's like these people understand how to engage consumers. That's their entire job and that's what they're best at. And so we, we love to advise, or Casper especially, loves to advise founders on how to position their own social media, how to, um, how to basically give off their brand and everything like that. And then on top of all of that, when it comes to the creator side, our value as a fund is that we have this whole solo GP mentality. We don't have a complicated investment committee. There aren't four different layers of people all need to sign off a deal. You're dealing with two people, it's me and Casper, and that's what yeah. we need to think about. So, so yeah. we, we, you know, we've had the pleasure of having founders who've really liked us having involved and who've given us super pro, pro rata basically whenever we've wanted it in follow-on rounds. Um, so yeah, we, we're really confident in our value add. Now's the big question, I think, because there's anything you could be certain of, then it's that a celebrity will also be a prima donna, <laughs> or at least that is what people would expect. Uh, yeah. So I'm super curious to hear, how do you think about involving these and managing them as stakeholders and that kind of thing? Um, I'm super curious. So I met at Web Summit, I met Anthony Saleh, who's also, you know, the producer of uh, Kendrick Lamar, and I don't know yeah. what. And it was interesting to hear how he thought about his producer business and his VC business. That's then a seven hundred million dollar yeah. fund, so it's a bit of a different different ship, right? Yeah. But hearing about how those two work together and how he thinks about it, I'm super curious to hear how you, you know, think about this and the stakeholder management that's involved. Yeah, it's interesting. I actually very rarely get asked this question, so it's good to it's good to actually think about it myself. I mean, the the, the it's a very simple answer, which is you're absolutely right. There is a lot of stakeholder manager, there is the management, there is this whole prima donna aspect to it. But from a founder's perspective, I take that. Casper <laughs> and I take that. So we, we, are the, we are the points of contact with the creators most of the time. So for example, when it comes to like due diligence in a deal, getting them involved, I will be the one fielding the questions to them and putting it in a way that they will understand. And then when it comes to you know, sharing updates and things like that, I'm the primary point of contact for them. So yeah. there is definitely a lot of stakeholder management, but fortunately for the founders, that's kind of sits on me and Casper. On that topic, I'd like to actually ask you something because I've also been talking with a couple of, um, you know, fund syndicators, whatever, in this space, right? Uh, mostly athletes, to be honest. Yeah. And I found myself feeling quite skeptic about the terms yeah. of some of these funds in terms of the conditions they're granting to, in this case that I'm referring to, athletes or influencers, right? Mm -hmm. Just one type of influencers compared to other LPs. And kind of looking from the outside, my immediate thought was like, hmm. I'm not sure I would like to be an LP that is not an influencer <laughs> in this fund. Um, yeah. I, and and I'd, like, I'd like to abstract myself from that and ask you kind of from an overview standpoint, how do yeah, you yeah, guys I mean, think about, you know, the, the different profiles of LPs you have? Yeah. Do you have special terms for influencers? Yes, no. Why, why not? Kind of what's your thinking there? We don't have any influencers as LPs. People quite often confused about this. It's very clear. We don't have influencers or LPs. 
RLPs pay fees, they sit in our fund, you know, our, our kind of what we call our fund zero uh, had, you know, when we were raising the fund, it had, you know, gross IRR of over 100%. We had, a, you know, DPI of almost one times, like 0.75 times in two years. You know, we, 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 we had a good returns that were attracted LPs to want to invest in our fund. On the side of our fund, on a deal by deal basis, we can bring in content creators, celebrities, athletes, people like that into deals. So it's not like we have a two-tier LP base. We have yeah. an LP base, that's separately Yeah, that is very different. But then the, the follow-up question is, do those co-investors then have special terms? Because I've also seen that, right? So I've seen setups where you have funds and then you have syndicates on the side. But these yeah. syndicates actually have really, really sexy terms versus the actual LPs. You're going to love it. David, you're going to love it. Um, so no, they don't. they don't. There's no terms. They just invest in the companies. We just share the offer. I mean, it's like we don't even create SPVs. That's what, that's what really surprises people. We don't create SPVs for our creators. We literally just introduce them to the founder. Okay. We, so again, this is really important. We're not taking any economics from creators. We're benefiting from creators. We're introducing them to founders. It's almost like um, if a, you know, sometimes you see um, a, a great venture fund do a deal, uh, you know, Sequoia will do a deal and they'll bring in the CEO of Robinhood to co-invest with them. They won't charge them any fees. It will just be part of the value yeah. add process of bringing in people. That, that's how we do it. So it's not like we're creating this two tier economic structure um, which a lot of what some people think is actually the, the difference. Yeah, I'd love to ask why have you decided against having any of them as LPs? So this is I love that question and the answer. Maybe David, <laughs> maybe you'd be in a good position to answer because it's for the exact concern that you've raised. So we don't, we, yeah. don't, we don't want preferred terms. We don't want structural complexity, and fundamentally, we don't want to profit from creators. We understand that they're providing us value. Why would we charge yeah. them for that? Um, so yeah, we, we, that, that's why we don't want creators in the fund. Yeah, that's interesting. Does that mean, does that mean that you're also, because basically, as you said, right, it's not like you're, you're setting up SPVs and pulling in influencers. No, you're presenting them with interesting deals that they might have potential value add. But does that mean that you're thinking strategically about the base of influencers that you have, which deals you present to, to each? How, how does that work? How do you guys manage that internally as well? That's exactly right. So yeah, we, we think a lot about um, who comes into each deal. You know, we've had, like I mentioned, Lottie, this Kevin platform. We brought in, um, you know, the, the strategy. Yeah, so you didn't bring, you didn't, you didn't bring that one to uh, to Stormsy. Yeah, exactly. And we didn't, <laughs> and we, also didn't we also didn't bring our esports company to, to him. Um, so <laughs> no, we, we, yeah. We're very careful. And we take it very seriously because we want for the right fit to come to the right, the right person. We don't just kind of blindly shed. And that's that's why it's so structurally important. That we don't take economics on it because yeah. we have no reason to offer to give away some of our allocation. Yeah. somebody yeah. who's not going to help the company that, that there's no reason why we would do that and that's yeah. that's that and then the... i think this is the perfect segue to to going to then say okay what are the deals <laughs> what are you focused on you're doing you're doing consumer internet but what does that mean exactly why do you love that space and how does it work with the model yeah so so the way the way we define consumer internet is we have kind of four subcategories that, that we're interested in the first one is consumer social and that we include gaming and well as obviously you know consumer social sector of um, social apps and things like that. The second category is marketplaces. So before working in private equity, I worked at Uber. Um, so I love the whole marketplace, especially asset light marketplace model. Um, so we do a lot of those. That's B2C and B2B marketplaces in some cases. The third category we do, which um, which is a lot, what a lot of people associate us with is creator economy, creator tools. Got a lot of you know opinions on what I like there, what I like less there. Um, and then finally, e-commerce enablement. So that's the whole kind of MarTech theme around giving um, startups and, and larger companies the tools they need to grow their business. That's what we do 
In terms of why we like consumer internet as a theme, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a high volatility theme. It's a theme, it's a high kind of, I like to think of it as a high upside volatility theme where you can, you know, you, you, can, you can make, you can get very, very big outcomes in consumer internet if things go right. Uh, and, you know, it's a space where you need to really fundamentally understand it to start investing in it. There's a lot of kind of B2B funds that do one or two consumer deals here and there. And, you know, some of them will go well, but it's, it's, it's not necessarily so easy. Whereas for us, it's, it's an area where we're really super focused on. So we kind of know a bit more intuitively Kind of what's going to be cool, what's not going to be cool, um, how you can grow on social media, things like that, that we think can help help our founders and help us select the best um, deals. I have to ask, given the uh, turmoil <laughs> that we've been we've we've seen in the market and the overall kind of state of venture in, in Europe, how, how do you think about it? How do you see it? Because many many argued that uh, they're they're shying away from consumer. Others would argue the opposite. So I'd love to hear your your kind of um, I don't know reflections on the market as it is today. Yeah, so there's, I mean, there's always two components to it. There's always the, the valuation environment uh, and how that's changed, the capital markets environment effectively, and then the yeah, underlying macro. So the, the capital markets environment, I would say, has, has dropped off no more or less for consumer than any other sector. I think a lot of people talk about slowing down consumer investments, but you know, 100 times, 150 times ARR, fintech investments you know, um, are, are probably you know, dropping off more, actually, than your average yeah. consumer investment so but i think that's the capital market environment i feel like it's pretty much neutral versus other sectors maybe slightly less negatively affected uh in terms of the macro uh yeah i mean i think it'll be it'll be really interesting to see to see what happens with the macro i mean uh i think people will continue to obviously consumers are going to consume if if <laughs> if the, the market may go down you know let's say let's say the gdp drops by a couple of percentage points for us like i used to work in private equity and when you're buying a market leader that owns 35% of the market, 40% of the market, and the market drops 3%, you're fucked. Because you're gonna drop 3% because that's what you are. Whereas if, you, if you're in a startup that owns 0.1% of the market, and the market drops 3%, and then you double your market share, quadruple your market share, you earn 0.4% of the market, oh no, the market dropped 5%. I don't care, I still 4X because I drew my market share. So, so I, think, I think the, I think in consumer, I don't think, I think when you're in investing in these really early stage companies that are growing shares so quickly, you're a little bit more shielded from macro. And I'm not saying that to be, uh, to say it's not an issue at all, something we take really seriously, but I think, um, I think if you're investing in a company that's going to take share quickly, it's much, you're much more protected. Against it. I'm curious, uh, your deal flow machine, because you're investing globally. Um, what is the split? How much is Europe? How much is, is US? How much is everywhere? And, and then at the same time also, you know, tie that in with your, your machine, right? Where do you get the deal flow and, and how do you, how have you built that, that up? Yeah. So we are about one third us, one third Europe, one third emerging markets, roughly. We've ended up being more, um, Europe and us skewed, uh, so far, but, um, that's the idea in terms of how we, um, in terms of our deal flow, how we get it. The great thing about being a super focused sector fund is that people want to send you deals. That's the two things actually, it's being a super focused sector fund and also not leading means it's like people will be leading a deal and say, hey, it'd be quite fun to get somebody involved to understand social media. Let's call Great Adventures. Uh, so yeah, we, we see deal flow from all around the world, everything as far as Southeast Asia to Latin America, US, Europe, anywhere. And how do you, huh, this is maybe a confusing use of the word lead, but how do you use your creators? Is it always you guys finding a deal and then finding a creator that matches? 
or is it is it sometimes the other way around that you have creators that you then find deals or make sure you keep thinking about developing in the in the same you know path as which your your creator network has you're traction. basically asking hunting versus fishing right <laughs> yeah i love that question um i don't know which way around is hunting or fishing but basically <laughs> i think the first one basically we definitely under no circumstance would ever do a deal because we think it makes sense for our creators that's not something we're doing at all because like like this is it is important so our creators are very much something that we do on the side we have a venture fund we don't even always do our deals with creators we have a venture fund that helps us to understand except casper of course who's the founder of the fund and um, and is himself a creator, but we don't need to invest in every deal alongside some, some somebody else. So we do deals that we love. We do a, do a load of diligence, do a load of calls, do a load of references, do a load of analysis, whatever it is that you need to get to do to do a deal. And then and only then do we think, hey, maybe it'd be cool to bring somebody else into this. So we would never, we'd never like meet a really cool boxer, Anthony Joshua, or something like that, and be like, hey, we've got to find a boxing deal in the next four months. Uh, anything that's boxing, we'll do it. Yeah. yeah. Nah, but that. That is actually, you know, it's an important distinction and it, it might sound the way you put it here as that would be a ridiculous thing to do, but in a way it's not, right? Because if, if, if your core value add is we've got these amazing creators that can really change the destiny of a brand or of an upcoming consumer startup, well, then it maybe wouldn't make that, you know, wouldn't be such a bad idea to say, okay, we've got some huge stars that we can then connect with startups that are strategically aligned with their uh, journey. So in that sense, you know, it, it wouldn't be entirely stupid. And if you only ran a club, you might run more in that direction. Oh yeah. Whereas absolutely. When, that's yeah. Absolutely okay. But that's super exciting. Well, but that's can, a, can you tell me that's an anything interesting about topic. this? Split? That's an interesting topic in itself though, Andreas, sorry for interrupting you, which is I am actually a big proponent of doing syndicates that you don't need to, the next step isn't necessarily launching a fund, right? The, the economics are very different. There's challenges. But there's also pros, <laughs> right? So I'd love to ask you actually that exact question. Why did you guys decide to go the fund route instead of just scaling up a syndicate investment club operation? Because that is definitely something that would be possible. And there's many creative people doing amazing job doing that actually. Yeah. Um, so, well, on the type of investment club that we were previously running, I mean, we, we didn't take any economics on that. So that was like, you know, we'd have to just be investing small checks ourselves forever, which obviously is going to take too long to pay off for it to be worth it. In terms of why we from a you know, GPLP perspective, decided to go down the fund route. Um, I think we wanted, we wanted the security of knowing that we had uh, X years to invest in a strategy that we believe in. I don't think we wanted to have, I don't think we wanted to have investors signing off or not signing off on every individual deal. I do, I do actually see, and I do agree with what you said earlier, it can be really good for accountability. And I do think you can end up raising a lot of money and in some ways maybe even making more economics in a way because of the deal by deal carry. Exactly. So, no, so, I, so I do get it. But I think I think we wanted a layer of kind of creative freedom that I think would have been hard for us to replicate with a syndicate. I, I, I agree. It's harder to do high conviction contrarian bets using syndicates. Yeah. That's for sure, right? With a fund you get you get that mandate, right? Within within certain certain criteria. I have a, a weird question and I it might not make sense, but you know, I was I was kind of uh going over some of your, your content and namely like when you guys announced um, the fund where you kind of spoke a bit about the different themes that you're looking at, what excites you, gave yeah. some, some, some specific examples, like not super in-depth, but you did kind of outline a few. And I'm wondering how, how much of an overlap you guys have in the type of deals you're looking at with these Web3 slash metaverse topics and how do you guys think about that space as a fund? Is it something that you steer away from? Is it something that you rely on on specialist funds? Is it something that you're actually super 
super kind of bullish about and, and you're actually quite experts about it? So I've, I've personally invested in Ethereum since 2017. Casper's been doing a lot of crypto stuff personally for a while, but we've never invested a single cent of anybody else's money in anything to do with crypto. And we've done quite a few deals now. We've, we've passed on everything that has anything to do with crypto. And the, the reason for that, and we've, we've, we've always felt this way, is that because all crypto, both the tokens and the companies are so correlated, you look at, if you look at the last six months and you look at how they've gone up and down, they're so incredibly correlated. Basically, there's a huge amount of beta in the market, or beta in the market, the Americans say. And, um, and that, that beta is much better expressed via crypto specific funds rather than by generalist funds or consumer funds or other funds that want to dip their toe in the water in crypto because if one of our lps wants crypto exposure they should either one invest in a crypto fund or two buy levered long bitcoin <laughs> by, you know by some kind of levered yeah. version of, of, of a bitcoin security that they can just get that exact exposure that will be far better than, than us investing in crypto so that's that's my answer on why we've never done any crypto investments and likely weren't yeah what about something <laughs> like the metaverse and whatnot because you do you do gaming right or, or you know yeah. there's, there's somewhat of a possible crossover there so i love the metaverse as a theme i just don't think it really has anything to do with crypto so i think you know i think when it comes to gaming i love open world games um as, a, as an investment theme you know, you've got amazing companies like roblox and mojang and you know amazing companies uh and which we're definitely interested in you know we, we're definitely looking all the time at gaming companies that are using multiplayer and massively multiplayer worlds that's super, super interesting for us. Uh, but I just don't think necessarily has anything to do with crypto. And then, then one final point actually is uh, a lot of people think there's a really close relationship um, between Web3 and the creator economy. That's something you hear a lot, right? It's like, a, it's like a form of the creator economy. So we kind of have quite a strong view that that's not a good, those two things don't combine together well at all, which I think is a little bit contrarian because a lot of people think they're very closely linked. Could you could you deep, could you deep dive on that? Because something that when I when I started my question, I read something that you guys were saying the creator economy and Web Web three are not a good fit, despite many VCs' wishes. And I thought that was a cool sentence. So do deep dive, do 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 expand a bit. Yeah. So creators, the vast majority of creators, you can call them Web two creators, basically creators that aren't a very small set of Web three creators, make the vast majority of their money through brand deals, right? So they're Coca-Cola or some big brand will pay them to promote their brand in the, in their next video. They can get paid anything between one thousand and hundred thousand, a million dollars to promote the stuff. So their whole economic engine is built on this idea that people will trust what they're suggesting, what they're promoting, right? And so if they do a, if, so so, so the, the trust in them as a brand is super super important. So for, for as soon as a creator does a crypto project or or, web, or an NFT project or some kind of social token. Almost by definition, the way that you know public markets work is that the incremental buyer will always lose in the end. You can always, you know, your your old buyers, people who bought a long time ago, can always win because the value goes up. But the last person to, to to tick the market in the in the stock ticker will always, by definition, lose because it can only go down from the top, right? And so, by almost by definition, if they do a crypto crypto um, drop, somebody is going to lose. One of their fans is going to lose, and that fan is likely going to be pissed, right? And so then they start to erode, and they basically, effectively, the word is rug pull, um, in, in an extreme case, but they, they worry about rug pulling their fans, basically. And obviously, the people who are most likely to buy the tokens are the most likely to be the closest to them and, and, and will be the ones who might end up losing money. So if you go to the Twitter DMs or Instagram DMs or any kind of email account for any content creator, and you search the way I've done this, you search the word 
NFT, Web3, crypto, any of that, hundreds of messages from startups trying to get them to launch NFT projects or do tokens or any of this type of stuff. And very, very few of them want to reply because they, they don't want the risk of rug, rug pulling their fans. The only exception to this is what you can call a Web3 specific creator who literally comes up, you know, you, back in 2021, you had a lot of like Web3 musicians and Web3 artists and obviously a lot of NFT artists and stuff like that. They don't have that problem because, because their audience... Yeah, but that's not a fair... That's not a fair... They're fully aware of the risk that they're going to... Yeah, that's that's not a, a fair comparison, right? It's like... Well, I am actually not in total agreement here. Maybe I'm understanding it incorrectly, but... So it's one thing that you can offer your product. I, I could take my podcast and then I could chop it into bits and then sell it to people that love the European VC. That that I see then all of a sudden I'm monetizing stuff and might then do the rock pull as, as you termed it. Um, but there's also the problem I, I'm thinking is that when you are a creator and you put it up on YouTube, YouTube are the ones or Google are the ones that are making the money because they're, they're, they're their advertisers. You know, it's them that that are reaping the the advertising, the bulk share of their advertising revenue, right? And and what Web three does allow you to do is to say, well, I will not do an NFT drop that might then pull the rug on everyone, mm -hmm. but I damn well will get my own advertising revenue. Yeah. <laughs> um, so so I'm guessing that it's it's the NFTs specifically that you you're more yeah. hitting against them. Exactly. I think I agree with exactly what you just said. I think the problem with it is is that everything is tradable. And I think, yeah. I think creators often don't want their work to become tradable because if it becomes tradable, it can lose value. And if it loses value, yeah. then everyone gets pissed. So it's, it's, it's actually yeah. less the kind of technology, the decentralization that's the problem. Yeah. It's actually the fact that it's- yeah, But it's the tradability of, yeah, okay, I get that. Guys, I think we are about to move it's into the It's always difficult fire. to come back from a discussion about crypto and Web3 and stuff and then shift to another topic because, because it's so, you need to really get out there, right? So, yeah. David, feel free to wrap us up. I'm going to wrap us up as we always do, Sasha, with a quick fire round. Quick fire round is only ask quick answer questions, 30 to 60 seconds each. Are you ready? I'm ready. First question is, what areas, sectors, or technologies excite you the most that other people don't really feel that excited about? I think probably I'm going to use a word that's like super unsexy, uh, but and that's kind of the point of the question, I guess. But Martech, <laughs> so marketing technology. But I think we I think we're really going to see a big payday in in my, we already slightly are, but I think it's going to really continuing, and I think a lot of VCs should be should be more focused on it. There's kind of three reasons, which is number one, marketing mix is just a slow continuing growth of online share of marketing mix and use of social media and everything like that in marketing mix. Um, is it's just it's not going to stop. It's going to yeah. keep going and it's going to keep marching on. The second one is that regulations and platform policies. You've seen what happened with iOS 14.5 and ATT are becoming much more onerous and complex and difficult. And that is a there's a lot of technology solutions that are required to to, to navigate that. It's a, it's, a, it's a situation of change. And finally, there's this point that like you know platforms are continuing to take share. I saw last week that. You look at Amazon's advertising revenue; it's it's absurdly it's 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 much much bigger. It's like almost it's not even it's it's not obviously it's not as big as you know a Google or something yeah. like that, but it's it's actually kind of touching it, uh, and it's 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 continuing to grow very very fast. So much more platforms are trying to basically monetize by marketing, and there's for sure startup opportunities in that. We agree very much. So second question uh, of the quick fire: What are your top tips? for emerging VCs who are now fundraising? So there's a few. So the first one would be start with the anchor. 
So I, I always say like, you know, your, your time, the proportion percentage split of your time, and it's so obvious, but the percentage split of your time should match the percentage split of your priorities. So for example, if I'm speaking to a really early stage co-founder, so a founder of a business that doesn't have a co-founder, um, that wants a co-founder, I always advise they should be spending at least 90% of their time looking for a co-founder, even though that's super boring and not the fun stuff. They want to be wireframing and doing all the cool stuff. Um, yeah. the, the time should match the priorities. So I think it's the same with, with emerging managers. I think 90% of their effort should go to just finding only an anchor LP who's going to take a conviction down on them. Getting small check commitments from elsewhere is, I think, not, or, or you know, or, or finding cool people to speak to or founders or doing market mapping and that stuff is, is interesting, but I think the whole effort needs to come with finding somebody who's going to take a conviction bet and anchor the fund. Uh, we were super lucky to have that, and, um, and so that was basically how we got the whole thing going. Third. Oh, actually, sorry, second one, second yeah. one. Um, make, this is interesting. Make LP updates actually good. Put a lot of effort into LP updates. And the reason for that is that uh, the reason a lot of effort needs to go into LP updates is that it's the returns take a long time in venture capital. <laughs> Nobody knows like how what the ultimate um, money they're going to make, you know, the DPI they're going to make back in the long term. So all they have to judge you on is the quality of your updates. That's literally it. And so you need to make those really good. You need to put a lot of effort in those. You need to make those valuable for somebody to receive in their inbox. So again, like I think that's like a full. It should be a full week of work for a GP to make the best possible LP update you can. I would actually add to that um, that some do it in a super kind of hype way. Like just, it's yeah. all good news. It's all good news. It's all, yeah. everything's amazing. Life's beautiful. Everything's pink. And then suddenly yeah. one day there'll be bad news. Others do it in a way that I actually love, which is like kind of to some extent detailed, yes, but also kind of very, um, how to put it, very kind of transparent, right? On what's going well, what's going wrong, we're concerned about this. We're excited about that. And I love that, you know, how it shows to the LPs, how you think as a GP, what's going on, you know, that level of trust just bolsters, right? With that. 100%. 100%. Yeah, yeah, very cool. Third and final question, which is what has been your most counterintuitive learning since you started Creator Ventures? Okay. The most counterintuitive learning is the investing with the best funds uh, without doing your own work is not only not a good strategy, it's a, it's a very bad strategy. Uh, so um, basically, you know, being being manager focused as opposed to deal focused. Uh, and the, the, the reason the reason I think that is, is that uh, sometimes they're playing a very different game to an early stage fund. They're trying to, they'll put a small check into something because they want to learn how deal works or, you know, a five million check to a $2 billion fund might not be that meaningful to them. So joining them on that deal may not be the smartest thing in the world. Um, so I think a lot of a lot of generations, this whole generation of venture capitalists has been built on the fact that the best deals always go to the best funds. But I think what's happened in the last couple of years is that those best funds have become so big and ballooned so much that their deal selection has become so much worse that actually I think there's quite a lot of adverse selection sometimes in just blindly following uh, the biggest funds. I love that. Couldn't agree more. Beautiful way to end it up. Sasha, thank you for joining us for the European VC. It was an absolute pleasure. I hope to stay in touch and uh, talk to you soon. Likewise, thanks a lot. Thank you for listening to this episode of the European VC, the go-to podcast for everything European VC. If you love the show, share it with your friends and join our newsletter at eu.vc. 